Welcome everyone to another brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And if you are a returning listener to the show, then thank you so much for your continued support. I hope this episode also lives up to your hopefully high expectations that uh, we have on the show. And if you are a new listener, then thank you so much for tuning in and clicking on this episode. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get something out of it. And if you do, then we have 50 other episodes out there for you to browse through. And if you do find any value, the best way to support the show is to help us out by rating and reviewing. Um, just going on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever you use, and rating it, giving us five stars. And um, today, I am very excited to get into this episode. We're talking about pediatric psychology with a very special guest. So let's get straight into it. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Guys, I'm so excited to get into this episode because today we're going to be talking about a passion of mine that I don't get to talk about often because these guests are so hard to find. And this specific guest is going even a little bit deeper into that to a specific subsection. So this is Dr. Natasha Palopoulos. And I asked her how to pronounce that like three times before this just to make sure I get it right. Dr. Palopoulos holds a master's degree in clinical psychology followed by a PhD in clinical psychology with now a fellowship and further specialization in pediatric psychology. Um, Dr. Palopoulos is also an advocate for sexual and gender diversity and is outspoken about that topic and has given lectures and seminars on it and has also co-authored several peer-reviewed publications and presentations. In this podcast, we're going to cover kind of a lot of that. So let's get into it. Dr. Palopoulos, welcome to the welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was so excited to connect. I'm a very big fan of this awesome podcast, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Definitely. No, thank you so much for listening to it. And thank you for coming on. This podcast is only possible because of the absolutely incredible people that somehow agree to come on to this. Um, so I guess the first thing is just tell us a little about yourself. How did you get into uh, child psychology or as a clinical psychologist, go into pediatrics from that? And why do you do what you do? Yeah. So like you mentioned, I'm Dr. Natasha Palopoulos. I go by Tosh. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a pediatric psychologist in Miami, Florida. Um, I'm also a first-generation Greek-American. I was born and raised in Chicago. I did some of my training in Boston and then came back down here for my position. A lot of my clinical interests are based in pediatric consultation liaisons. So I'm a consultant to the Children's Hospital. Any child under a medical admission who may need a psychological evaluation, I'm the call for that. Um, so I also have an interest in somatic symptom and related disorders and pain disorders, as well as solid organ transplantation. Mm. Um, and within that, I teach fellows and residents. I do a lot of didactic seminars and trainings regarding gender and sexual diversity and an affirming, affirming care approach within hospital systems. So all that being said, I'm just a big advocate and I'm extremely passionate about youth mental health. I, I just find pediatric patients astounding and to be in their presence and to be part of their medical team to me is the biggest privilege. So, um, 
it's it's a job, but it's also my passion. Yeah. It's definitely what I feel like has been my calling. Sure. How'd you find this out to be your passion? Because this is pretty niche, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always love asking people how they get into these things and how they really fell in love with it. And you said it's your passion. So how to become that yeah. way? Um, I mean, I was a psychology major in undergrad. I was always on team sports. I love the dynamic of a team. And then uh, going into grad school, I love the idea of working with other providers. I went to a graduate school that was very much based in interdisciplinary care. So it was it's like kind of being on a team again in some aspects. Mm-hmm. So I was able to use a lot of those skills. Um, I always really enjoyed working with others. I just didn't know in what aspect. And, you know, I give you a lot of credit because medicine, I found it very challenging. Um, So I wanted to be able to have more time with patients. And I wanted to be able to dive into things related to psychology, related to mental health. So it was a really great avenue for me. And then you are right in terms of like pediatric psychology. It's a very specific field. Mm -hmm. Um, I honestly just found it along the way through graduate school and through different rotations. And then I just really just ran with it. Um, I'm also even more specific because I'm what's called a CL psychologist. So like I said, I'm based in a children's hospital and I'm a consultant to the medical team. I say it's kind of like if a child has a rash, you may consult dermatology. So if a child is exhibiting any emotional or behavioral symptoms, they'll consult the psychologist. Sure. Can you expand on that just a little bit? So we've had psychiatrists on here before. We'd had some clinical psychologists on here. I think Dr. Jade Wu, um, but she wanted to kind of the sleep aspect of it, which is also pretty niche. And that was great talking to her. But what is the difference between psychiatry and psychology? Because when you mentioned we kind of consult someone for a rash, you say dermatology. Mm-hmm. When people think of someone having a mental health issue or something relating to that in the hospital, you think of psychiatry. So where does psychology come to this? And what is the difference there? Yeah, um, I'm pro all mental health. Um, there's also even like, you know, licensed clinical social workers that do therapy, there's mm-hmm. professional counselors, in terms of psychology and psychiatry. So most psychologists are either PhD doctoral level or PsyD doctoral level. Um, and psychiatrists are DOs or MDs. So they are mm-hmm. medical physicians. Um, I think that they take on the piece of doing a lot of like psychotropic medication management. And I do know that some also do therapy, but in terms of a psychologist, we're really trained in clinical assessment and diagnosis of patients and also therapeutic intervention. So a lot of people say like, Oh, like do some CBT. <laughs> like what is CBT? So mm-hmm. like cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. or dialectical behavioral therapy. So we're trained in specific treatment and therapeutic modalities that are more geared towards talk therapy as opposed to psychiatry where there are medical doctors who specialize in psychiatric symptoms, but are often more of the medication um, managers. Definitely. It's kind of a bad joke here. I hope you have more time to talk to patients than psychiatrists who have like five minutes per patient. Yeah. CBT definitely needs more time than that. Yeah. 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 So also one of the other distinctions I wanted to ask you about is kind of the difference between adult and child psychology. Um, I know you specialize in child psychology. Did you notice a distinct difference in the two and why did you decide to branch off? What is that big difference? Yeah. Um, so I'm trained as a licensed clinical psychologist. So I, I have a general, like I'm a general psychologist, but mm-hmm. then you choose to specialize. Uh, I always say like adults are a whole nother ball game, but I actually work a lot with adults because I'm working with parents of my mm-hmm. patient. Um, with children, I think the big thing is focusing on development. There's so many distinct and major developmental periods within a child's life that it's really important to have an understanding and knowledge of those uh, different milestones and those different transition and developmental periods. 
And then also like if we get even more in the nitty gritty that, you know, I know as a physician, you may be able to talk about is just like the development of the brain, right? Because the brain and Mm -hmm. the mind are interacting. So what is the brain looking like at a specific age? What areas are more developed? What areas are still developing? Um, So for me, I always just was really fascinated by children. Um, I think children are so genuine and so like honest and open that I love that about them. And like you said, I love with children, there's so much prevention that can happen as opposed to intervention. So I think it's just the, the best population. That being said, I also work with adolescents and young adults. Um, but, you know, typically once they rotate out of pediatrics, which is about like age 22 to 24, then kind of hand them off to the adult providers. Now, kind of a double-edged sword there I want to ask you about. When it comes to children, what ages are we talking about? Because you talked about a little bit like brain development, which you know happens in like very young years. Uh, years sorry. <laughs> and then um, some people might say that why does someone need a psychologist if they're a very young age? Because they might just go through development. They can grow out of something. Mm-hmm. Kind of what age range do you operate in there? For me, I operate from about age five to 24. So I see all of that. Um, And like you said, I love this podcast because it's about preventive medicine. And like we said, right, we're instead of intervening when something has already Mm -hmm. boiled over, we can be very much preventative. And when people think mental health, I think they think mental health disorders, but it's also mental health, which is connected 100% of the time to your physical health. So mm-hmm. just teaching kids about emotional intelligence, teaching them about, um, you know, things to look out for within themselves and their friends, developing emotional repertoire, uh, developing compassion, authenticity, like those are really important skills that help children also socially and academically. And that really sets them up to be successful as adults. Definitely. I think think those are all incredibly important skills. But um, as a physician, if I have, I'm not a pediatrician, um, I'm going to rehab medicine, I likely will see some pediatric populations, but probably not any that will be you will be seeing, um, because I'm not going to be really in acute care. But as a physician, given what I know right now, I typically wouldn't think to kind of have a child psychologist come see a patient. What are kind of the indications that you might see in a child that they need someone like you to come talk with them to do whatever? Mm -hmm. So I'll think of it. So I'm in the medical hospital, but even just outside of a medical hospital Mm -hmm. setting. So with kids, like, you know, we can also talk about like warning signs if a kid is struggling. Um, in general, though, I know you mentioned you're not a pediatrician, but pediatricians are usually like kind of the gatekeeper mm-hmm. with developmental milestones with looking at like, is the child behaving differently at home? Are they having outbursts? Are they more withdrawn? So with parents, I always talk about if your kid seems like they're not themselves, then that's usually warranting a conversation about what may be going on. Um, I always empower parents that they know their child best. So they're the ones who really understand, like, is something different about my child? Like with all humans, sleep and eating behaviors are really telltale signs of something is also going on. Um, and then in terms of things like anxiety or depressive symptoms, you can just see if a child is, you know, more perseverative, if they're, um, they're vocalizing something pretty repetitively, if they're concerned about something. Um, and then with depression, we often see with teens, there's more irritability. And then with younger children, there may be more like separation anxiety with an adult. Um, they're oftentimes like clingier or they're just sad, they're withdrawn, they're not engaging in their activities. Like going to school is basically a kid's job. So if there's an mm-hmm. impairment in them doing their job, it's often warranting a conversation about what might be going on. And 
Uh, I wanted to ask you about those kind of warning signs that you mentioned that parents might uh, want to look out for, whether it's a change in their child's behavior, whether that's eating behavior, sleeping behavior, or going to school, how they interact with their peers. We right now are unfortunately seeing a rise in youth suicide, and I am not a expert in this, so I can't say I have the data. It always makes these conversations difficult because I can't speak for the data because that's not what I'm kind of <laughs> an expert in. But what I've seen based on some articles is that we're seeing a rise in youth suicide. Mm-hmm. What's contributing to that and what can we do about it? Because that's absolutely devastating. Yeah. And I, yes, the so I have prepared so much for this conversation and <laughs> I know in terms of, in terms of the data because it's it's top, so so data in general right we we have a scientific method there's always caveats there are always limitations there's always we can't claim causality so i think that there's been this big panic in our society with the pandemic understandably it's been devastating for so many people um, i think sometimes the data is getting like disproportionately represented or it's being amplified to fit potential biases. And I'll be honest, I think COVID has become very politicized and that's maybe shifted people's views. It's kind of like when you're fishing for a hypothesis to be true, you're fishing for the data that's going to show it to be true. Definitely. So I actually spoke with a few suicidologists and I've been trying to follow a lot of the trends and the data and looking at the data myself. And actually during the two years of pandemic, youth suicide rates did not increase, nor did death by suicide. In wow. There has been this huge panic, though, like all these headlines are blasting that, yeah. you know, kids are dying because of suicide constantly. And I will say, like, yes, suicide is the second leading cause of death in individuals ages 10 to 24. And this was prior to the pandemic. I really want to be mindful and understanding that children's mental health was suffering before the pandemic. And it certainly has been devastating. I think there's been a lot of inclination about what factors are playing a role, but I don't think the data is clear on that yet. And definitely get into that. And I want to kind of really harp on that point right now, because as you just saw, I came in with this assumption that these, the rates of youth suicide were rising. And this is what happens when you're not an expert in a field and you just read headlines and you kind of see things, you don't actually take the time to dive in the data. And even myself as a physician who is, I like to be evidence informed. I read up on what I can to do that. Even I fell for this. And this is why we have experts such as Dr. Palopoulos on this podcast to talk about this. And it's huge because this is not due to the pandemic necessarily. These, This was already an issue. And then we're kind of just um, either exacerbating it based on the headlines or this has just suddenly become a talking point based off whatever someone wants to push. Right. Like uh, agenda wise. Right. And I think that what's dangerous about that is if we go into it with that lens and that presumption is that if you follow the idea of lockdowns, online schooling are bad, they're causing harm to youth, then individuals will think, okay, once we get rid of lockdowns and kids go back to school, that there will not be a youth mental health crisis. And that's what really worries me about that interpretation of the data, um, because that I, I find it really hard to believe that that will be the case. And actually school is a major stressor. Like in the US, mm-hmm. kids are much more likely to attempt suicide on a school day as opposed to a non-school mm-hmm. day. And I think that's also very important to highlight because um, when COVID ends, hopefully soon, um, people will might try to push us under the rug and think that this isn't happening more, COVID's done, this was related to COVID because this is causation. And then all of a sudden this becomes a non-issue and people stop talking about it, there's no awareness. But what we're saying here is that 
this is still going to be an issue because it was one before the pandemic. So it's just going to continue and we have to continue to bring awareness to that, which is why we have you on this podcast. Yeah. And I know you said that the factors are kind of difficult to determine based on the data that we have right now, mm-hmm. but do we have any kind of preliminary data that's pointing to several factors, anything that you can think of? Yeah. So the data is mixed and hopefully like, so what we know right with research is that there's cross-sectional data and there's longitudinal data and longitudinal is looking at trends over time. We're cross-sectional. We're kind of cutting out a piece and looking at it at one point in time. So a lot of the panic has been around some cross-sectional data and studies. I will say it's very much, you know, we can surmise that individuals and kids that were struggling prior to the pandemic with mental health disorders likely really struggled with the exacerbation and the effects of the pandemic. Um, I also want to be mindful that there has been a lot of distress in kids during the pandemic and distress does not equal a mental health disorder diagnosis, nor do anxiety symptoms, nor does sadness or depressive symptoms, right? Symptoms don't Mm-hmm. equal a full diagnosis. Um, I will say that there was an uptick in eating disorders among adolescent females, which is pretty alarming. And eating disorders with all disorders are, are pretty devastating, especially because there can be, you know, death is a possibility due yeah. to like lack of nutrition or electrolyte imbalance. Um, another, you know, strange thing that was seen was a, a little of an increase in tick disorders among adolescent females, which is really atypical because tick disorders are more prevalent in males. And at- real, real quick, what is a tick disorder for those that are listening? Um, so I'm definitely not- we, They might be thinking of the bug. Yeah. No. And we're not thinking of that, right? No, no. Okay, um, I just want to be so clear. <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm definitely not an expert in tick disorders, but uh, tick disorders, it's kind of like a, almost like a repetitive movement. It can mm-hmm. be like eye blinking or it can be like a certain twitch that someone is displaying over time. Um, one bizarre phenomenon, I'll say I'm not on TikTok, so I don't really know how it works. I don't know if that's interesting <laughs> to say, but there was something coming forward about something called TikTok ticks and just these social media trends. And interesting. Don't know if that's playing a role, um, but it's, it's, it's a little bizarre. It's definitely like atypical than what we're used to. I think um, even just the, like social media blasting a lot of things about different personality disorders and mental health disorders, um, I think it's creating some false narratives. Um, so we should be mindful of that. Speaking of social media, a lot of people put a lot of blame on social media for a lot of the increases in mental health disorders and just, um, just symptoms of mental struggle, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, I'm not versed in this terminology, so please forgive me mm-hmm. for that. But what can you say about social media in this environment? I feel like the data, like, right, it's nuanced and it's messy. Um, you know, screen time has probably definitely gone up during the pandemic. Now, what the impact is, I think it's, I think it's just really mixed. I think there is certain data that may show that it can be really harmful to youth and certain data that may show that it's not as harmful as we may think. Um, you know, I think that in general and social media, sometimes it can connect a lot of people and sometimes it can go down a rabbit hole and we can see certain sites or certain things that are being advertised that may be negative to mental health, such as like, you know, there's certain websites that may promote eating disorders or that um, they may promote other mental health conditions. So I think those are definitely not helping the situation. 
Definitely. And then speaking of headlines as well, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of these questions seem to be based on headlines now that I kind of look over <laughs> them, this outline. But one of the other kind of huge headlines and huge talking points has been that virtual schooling for children, like just taking them out of the classrooms due to this COVID restrictions and whatnot, have hampered their mental development for a multitude of reasons. Number one, because they don't have a physical teacher. Number two, because they don't have that peer-to-peer interaction. They're stuck at home all day, not able to go outside, play with their friends, all of these things people have said this has had a massive impact on mental development is that true yeah so again we have to look at what like the longitudinal data or long-term data will look like um i think that's a it's a tough call because i think it's extremely child dependent right there are certain kids who have thrived with online schooling right someone who may be more socially anxious for them, online schooling may actually be a relief and a break from the other pressure of school. There's a lot of bullying that goes on at school, so that may be alleviated. Um, I think in general, there are certain factors we need to be aware of, like what are, what are mitigating factors to uh, what we're seeing at school. And like I mentioned earlier, school is definitely a major stressor for kids. Um, you know, And stress, it can be positive, it can be negative, it can mm-hmm. be both. Um, but it definitely is something that kids are feeling. So I think it's very child dependent and I think the data is really messy and complex. Again, I think individuals who may have certain biases or social agendas, they may be inclined to look at only one set of the data or only specific Mm -hmm. findings. Um, I think one thing to be mindful of is there are youth that receive a lot of mental health care at school, like when they were physically going to school to see Mm -hmm. like a counselor. So those services not being able to happen, you know, those could certainly have an impact. Um, but kids are extremely resilient and they're pretty adaptable. The The thing that I think is worth focusing on is the constant shift or the change between like online school, hybrid model, in-person, back to online school. So all people love routines and that's really important for development. So when there's constant and frequent changes in routine and there isn't as much predictability, I think that can increase distress in kids. Definitely. And um, I also wanted to ask, continuing on about that, unfortunately, another part that has been politicized is masks. We're not going to talk about the use of masks, but we're going to talk about that. Some people say masks have reduced uh, children's mental development because they're not able to see facial expressions anymore because just they can only see the eyes. Is there any data on that? So there have been some studies that have tried to look at this and some, like you're saying, some worry that we get a lot of like emotion recognition, identification and cues from looking at other mm-hmm. people's faces. I think of like right when your baby first smiles at you, I'm sure it's like such an exciting moment because mm-hmm. they're they're like mirroring the emotion. Um, so they have done studies where they'll have someone look at a face um, and it'll be like children looking at a face that's masked versus unmasked. And the data on that is mixed in terms of like, can they identify the emotion? Um, But it's important to remember that masking at school for a few hours and preventing a very severe illness, I would say outweighs the few hours that they're masked. And because that's, uh, to me, I don't think that that's going to change their ability to identify emotions because they're going home, they're around their family and loved ones where they can be unmasked. They're also outside if they're unmasked. Um, they're talking like to peers, like through zoom or through, uh, like media platforms. So they're also having opportunities where they're not always masked. So they're still getting that interaction. Um, I think there's also been like in certain cultures and around the world, there's countries where like masking or veiling, veiling has been much more common. And I think the evidence and data from those cultures is pretty reassuring that it's not stunting child development of like emotion identification. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think that 
preventative measures for potentially life-threatening illnesses would outweigh something that we still have mixed data on and we've seen in other areas in the world is not harmful and it's not stunting child development. Yeah. So what it sounds like is that we pretty much just need to wait to see some longitudinal data. And there's things that exist on kind of both sides, as people love to say, where some people say, yes, it is hurting mental development. Some people say no, but there's no conclusive data. And people just love coming to conclusions for their own kind of biases. And fortunately, a lot of these biases come from what we as people who've gone through school, gone through all these things, think of as normal. Where I love that you brought up in other countries where kind of veiling or masking is more the norm at times. Their normal might be different where they think, oh, this is like I did this at some point. They'll just turn out like me. So that's their quote unquote normal. Whereas a normal in some contexts and environments such as ours is that we all went through it unmasked. So our expectation is that our children should also do this and that by masking, they're going to have some sort of hampered development. So I just want to also point that out because that's an important distinction to make. Yeah. And I think one thing that I actually want to talk about earlier in our conversation I want to bring up is that... um, you know, there are a lot of kids that have lost a relative, a primary caregiver, or a parent to COVID. And the loss of someone like that can be really detrimental to youth and the grief that comes along with it. So, you know, that that could also likely be playing a role in why we may be seeing increased distress in kids. Definitely. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. I just want to say that I am appreciating this episode quite a bit because these are things that I typically don't learn about. And selfishly, I kind of use this podcast to learn about these things. And I kind of (laughs) leech some of this information to use my own clinical practice and various scenarios. But that's just me rambling. So we talked about kind of some of the issues that have been kind of happening due to COVID, mass, mental development. We've talked about some of the warning signs, some things parents might want to look out for. What are the warning signs that something might be catastrophically going wrong that parents should seek intervention right now? Yeah. So uh, questions parents can ask themselves are, is my child engaged the way they usually are? Are they connected? Are they functioning with tasks at home and school? I would look out for sudden changes in their eating and sleeping patterns, looking out if they're more irritable or angry, if they're acting out more behaviorally. Um, I think a big thing is refraining from activities they once loved. Um, so, right. So if someone is like, is really enthralled with soccer and going to soccer practice or, you know, playing soccer. And then suddenly like there's zero interest in playing soccer or just being around others or being around teammates, that may be a sign. That's just like one example. Kids can have a lot of interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like I mentioned for younger kiddos, there may be some separation anxiety and like fear when they're away from a parent or an adult. And overall, the question of does your child seem like themselves? If not, there might be something that may be going on and it may be a symptom. Doesn't mean it has to be a disorder, um, but it may be worth having a conversation with them. Definitely. And I just realized I jumped the gun on this entire episode because I didn't ask you our famous question. That's because I was so interested in uh, what was to come in this. And we're getting to the preventive aspect now. Mm-hmm. So first off, because I jumped the gun, we have to go all the way back and ask mm-hmm. you within this context of everything that we've already talked about now, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Oh, okay. Um, To me, it would mean taking measures to reduce disease likelihood. So as someone who is in mental health, um, 
I see it as there's been, and correct me if I'm wrong, right? Because I'm also not an expert in certain things. Um, science has shown that there's an influence on psychological stress on our immune systems and potentially like the expression of our DNA, which may be linked to inflammatory diseases, which I feel like, you know, I see pretty often in the children's hospital. So despite this, despite mental health and stress and mental health disorders or symptoms playing a role in diseases, there seems to be a really big divide in primary care, medical care, and then mental health care which we can also get into, but then there are also there are these distinct entities and then they're significantly disproportionately funded, which I think is the big issue that we have in our system. What was the divide you were talking about? Um, the divide between... Between like mental health care and primary medical care. Do you want to dive into that? Sure. Go for it. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I, I, often, I often see this in terms of... Uh, because I'm often consulted for cases where um, the concern is like a somatic symptom disorder or... Uh, pain. And mm-hmm. there's a great psychologist, I'll definitely reference her because this is where I get a lot of like my um, evidence is Dr. Rachel Zoffness, I believe she's out in the Bay Area. And she talks, a, she's a pain psychologist and talking about the idea, which it's not even an idea because data shows it is that pain is emotional and physical 100% of the time. And I do a lot of this education with patients that there are factors that absolutely amplify our pain. Um, I know that you probably obviously, especially as like a soon, like soon to be rehab doc Mm -hmm. is that we think about, um, like, uh, what is it? Phantom limb pain, right? So ideally then if we cut off the leg, the pain should be gone if it's purely physical. However, that's not the way our bodies work because we know emotion, we know that pain is processed through our uh, brain's emotion center. So those are so interconnected. So, you know, for example, functional abdominal pain, like I think 10 to 20% of kiddos coming into children's hospitals or into pediatrician's office with abdominal complaints, it's often functional abdominal pain, right? So there isn't a sense of like organ tissue damage. However, the pain is very real and it's very much experienced and there's a lot of distress around it. And oftentimes it's not just a biomedical approach. It's a biopsychosocial approach to treat pain. Definitely. And I think we have touched on that in previous episodes, and it's great to be able to tackle that from the other side now of the kind of psychologist side. But we've definitely talked about an episode such as that with Michael Ray, where pain is not only a kind of mechanical experience, like something's wrong, something's broken, but it can also be that psychosocial model. There's factors that are going on um, within like mental health, psychologically, also within like the context of the community, their environment, all those different things. And a lot of times people have certain meanings that they attached to their pain. So despite everything being correct, like let's say they go to a physical therapist, they go to a rehab position, we've corrected whatever is going on. If there is an issue, let's say like tore a bicep, we fixed their bicep, they've gone through all the rehab, but the pain still exists. Then there's still a component of what does this pain mean to them? Why, like, what does this pain in their bicep mean? Is it just from something that they've just like chronically been used to now that they're like, it's always just going to hurt despite everything else. So I love that we're diving into the other aspect and the other side of it as well. Yeah. Um, So we've talked about prevention now. We're finally getting to it. The main part of this podcast. What do we do? Well, first, let's let's break this up. What can parents do first to practice preventive medicine, make sure that their children's mental health, kind of psychological development improves and doesn't deteriorate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So more directly with parents um, taking care of their own mental health, there is an association that's been found between poor 
parental mental health outcomes and that impacting youth mental health outcomes. So I really encourage parents to take care of themselves. I also understand that this is like a really challenging time for a lot of people around the world. There are a lot of things that are so out of our control and there's so much harm that's being done. It's, it's hard not to be exposed to it, but really encouraging parents take care, parents take care of their own mental health, um, parents modeling emotion identification and adaptive coping for their kids. Kids absolutely model what they're seeing. They're modeling the behavior they're seeing. Um, so I'm always honest with parents that if you're frustrated in a moment, it's okay. And it's normal. And by you acknowledging that with your child, you're normalizing that for them that, Hey, this is how I'm feeling, and this is what I can do about it. And even just feeling it and validating it is really important, especially with parents. It's really important that they validate their child's experience. Um, other things are helping your child foster healthy relationship with peers, being really consistent, like we touched on earlier, with healthy routines, predictability, and habits. Those are really helpful for kids. And like we mentioned earlier as well, looking out for those warning signs and then getting help. Definitely. And then when it comes to your side as a clinician, what are things that you can do with your patients, uh, whether it is the parent that you said you also <laughs> talked to many times or the child? What is it that you can do to kind of practice and promote prevention? Oh, yeah. In terms of prevention, um, I do like to do a lot of like talks that if I can into the community about mental health, which, again, it doesn't it's not talking about mental health disorders. I can certainly talk about that. Just the idea of how can we develop emotional repertoire about our emotions? How can we help children identify what they're experiencing, recognize signs that their emotion is increasing, and then what can they do? And I'm not saying there's always a problem-solving strategy. There is definitely adaptability in children about, you know, if I'm extremely frustrated at my older or my younger brother because he broke my crayon, I'm going to go punch a wall. Well, let's not. Maybe we can think of a different strategy. Maybe you can talk about how angry you are and you can identify it and you can let a parent know. And instead, maybe you can go and you can sit and, you know, watch a video for five minutes that helps calm you. Maybe you can do some diaphragmatic breathing. Um, I think kids really love distractions. So like a pleasurable activity that helps ground them and calm them in the moment is really powerful. And then once you learn that as a kid, you're more inclined to use that going into adolescence and being an adult. Yeah. And this is uh, pretty important. I think we've touched on this in a little bit in several other podcasts. One, I think one of our first ones ever with Dr. Mitesh Patel, who's a psychiatrist. And then again with um, Dr. Trevik, who was the um, kind of neurocritical care physician, but also a board uh, certified psychiatrist. Um, we talked about just being able to express emotions in a um, non-destructive manner, I think is what Dr. Trevik used. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not quoting him here, but being able to normalize all of these emotions, such as a child seeing their parent being angry and knowing strategies to like safely dissipate that anger because all these emotions are going to happen. We're not going to be happy 100% of the time. We're not going to be sad 100% of the time. The human experience is just a variety of emotions. And if it was any other way, it'd just be kind of weird. Yeah. But um being able to safely express those is key. And I think what you talked about, having children see their parents express that, those mirror neurons and kind of part of that learning development, that's hugely important. Definitely. Yeah. All right. I just wanted to dive into that real quick because when you think of like medicine, you give someone a medication, it's kind of easier to quantify that and it's easier to kind of design a study. So not being in that field, I don't really know how you, because uh, all of these things, all these emotions are kind of subjective. So someone being angry, expressing anger in a certain way, okay. maybe this is a better way now that I'm explaining the question. But yeah, is there anything so you can add now? 
It's right. So it's so it's so funny, right? Because to me, I'm like, oh, these things like make sense to me. And then I realize, right, like that not everyone is in this like yeah. field that I'm in. So um, there's a lot of things like uh, psychometric measures. So measures that have been developed over time, they've been validated, they show good reliability and validity. And they are looking at certain constructs, right? Like every pretty most people are familiar with Beck's depression inventory, for example, right? So it has questions that uh, once you score it, it'll look at like, are you having mild, moderate or severe level uh, symptoms of depression? Um, same with things like, you know, uh, really famous is like the um, MMPI, which is like a personality assessment, which is like over 400 questions of true and false mm. statements. And that starts to when you score it, you can look at like levels of different like pathology or different personality traits. Got it. All right. Moving on from there, that was just a little bit from my own curiosity, but you also mentioned you further specialize even more within like children and whatnot to specific populations, Mm -hmm. such as that of the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. Um, And you kind of had a talk on this, I believe. I watched a YouTube clip on this, or it was an article. It was one of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, But you talked about how they're specifically susceptible to specific mental health struggles compared to their peers. Can you talk about that? Why are they and what do we do about that? Yeah. So yes, I am extremely passionate about LGBTQ plus youth mental health, particularly because these are individuals who have been very, they're marginalized and they're at increased risk for a lot of poor mental health outcomes. I also think just given this situation going across the US, like, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but there has been so many bills that are being just spread across the U.S., including Florida, unfortunately, where, you know, they're banning banning trans athletes from performing. Um, they are, you know, here in Florida, it was just like this most saddening news that the Don't Say Gay bill was passed, which would limit and ban any classroom discussions like K through third grade that have anything to do with sexual orientation or gender identity. And, you know, it's just, it's been, honestly, it's been just disgusting because we know what the AMA and the APA show with like gender affirming care saves lives. We know that gender identity and sexual orientation are healthy aspects of one's identity. Um, I think some people fall under the idea that when you talk about gender identity and sexual orientation, you're talking about sexual activity and that's so false. And that's like such a, wrong narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. So within LGBTQ youth, uh, the Trevor, the Trevor project, great organization. Um, they've pumped up a lot of, uh, data and research. And in a recent study, they found that 42% of LGBTQ plus youth said they seriously contemplated suicide in the past year. And then wow. that rises to 50% for transgender youth. And they're also two to three times more likely to experience discrimination and bullying and report a lack of safety at school. I mean, those numbers are Mm -hmm. astounding. Like it's, you know, and it's, it's, it's crazy to me that we know this information and then people in power are putting bills and laws in place that are going to harm communities and harm kids. Um, It's, it's just, it's devastating. And honestly, as a psychologist, I think it, it makes our job even more challenging um, because part of what we do is we foster a safe split, safe space. And we know that gender affirming care really decreases a lot of distress in youth and in individuals. And then, you know, now we're having the situation where they can't talk about themselves at school or they can't talk about their family at school. And then that may increase their distress. And what does it mean to them and their identity? Um, you know, one of the most alarming stats to me is that um, in the, in the past year in the U.S., it's estimated that one LGBTQ plus youth or young adult attempts suicide every 45 seconds. 
Wow. So um, it's 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 pretty tough. It's also you know there's also a lot of other data looking at like su- like increased substance abuse, um, increased homelessness. Um, so it's just it's it's a pretty challenging situation. I think right now what's going on in the U.S. is so harmful that we're trying to improve mental health, and yet we have bills and governments that are kind of going doing the opposite. Yeah. yeah, those stats are absolutely in- like. They're terrible. Yeah. It's it's really bad. But the obvious answer here to kind of what we can do about this to prevent a lot of these issues is obviously legislation, which mm-hmm. is above many of our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just things we just can't do about it. But what can we do? What is in our power to kind of alleviate this? Yeah. So within hospital systems, and again, in line with the AMA and the APA, is our hope is to continue providing gender affirming care. And not only that, like being a safe provider. And what I mean by that is um affirming an individual's identity, whether that's their sexual orientation, whether that's their gender identity, using correct pronouns, asking, I always talk about voice and choice, like, how would you like to be addressed? And is this something you like to be shared with other providers or with your family, giving kids choices um, on a bigger realm, like you're talking about, which, you know, obviously, I don't know how much power we have in that. (laughs) There's been conversation about the Equality Act and the hope to pass that. So that would provide consistent and explicit non-discrimination protection for LGBTQ plus people across areas of life, including employment, housing, credit, public spaces, federally funded programs. So like right now in the US, 29 states, right, that's over half, they can deny freedom to people. So whether that's like housing, whether that's employment, they can discriminate based on one's identity. So the hope is if that act is passed, then we can really, really see an improvement of this across the country. My fear though, is that it's It's not going to get passed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of what we can unfortunately do, we have our hands tied because a lot of this goes to that legislation aspect, even uh, outside of just this Equality Act with um, LGBTQ health. There's a lot LGBTQ plus health. Sorry. No. Um, there's just so much, even when it comes to public health policies for kind of nutrition, all of these. It's just there's a lot out of our hands. It's really frustrating. And I'm, I can see that frustration in your face. Yeah. I'm talking about it as well. And, and I um, see my medical colleagues who they share the frustration. They, they so badly, you know, sometimes I feel like they so badly wish we had a magic wand to fix the social situation at home. And unfortunately we can't. And, you know, it's like we're in a system that's already like, I feel like is it, it's like over overwhelmed, like overburdened, overworked. And um, one thing that I was going to bring up like based on this in our conversation earlier is about like what we can do systematically with like trying to improve mental health in youth and that mm-hmm. improving access. So like, for example, I think a lot of people have recently read this, that the federal government invests over about like 15 billion annually to ensure that enough physicians are distributed throughout the country. And then the investment in training and mental health workforce is one five hundredth of that. One five hundredth. I can't do the math right now. I mean, I can't do the math. <laughs> not a mathematician. It's it's not even close. Um, That's but the it's, point. It's not even close. And I think, um, you know, the in terms, and then even focusing on children and adolescents, the amount of mental health care providers and clinical psychologists that are specifically trained in child and adolescent care are very minimal. Definitely. So I I like that you brought that up. And I absolutely love that you're talking about from the legislation aspect, because one of the huge parts of this podcast is I not only talk about what like we can do as individuals, like 
maybe you talked about what parents can do, which is kind of identifying signs that might be troubling outside of the norm because parents probably know their children best. Then you talked about what we can do as clinicians, like from an outside perspective, talk to the parents, find ways to demonstrate um, how to kind of talk about these behaviors, go through CBT, all these things with children. Then you talked about kind of the systematic approach to it, um, kind of promoting more safe spaces, all those kinds of things. And then you talked about the legislation. And I like how you just keep building on there because that's how you kind of look at prevention across the spectrum. Yeah. And the last question I have for you, um, we're going to try to end this on a good note, on a happy note, because children should be happy. Um, we're just going to keep that as a theme is if someone stops you at a Starbucks while you're getting your morning drink um, and asks you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in that two minutes? What a fascinating, specific question. I'll be honest, as a psychologist, my inclination is to ask, what does healthy mean to you? You you can't take my question, right? <laughs> <laughs> like what 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 does health mean to you? Because then we can truly mm-hmm. start to develop short term and long term goals towards that. Um, to me, I would think that being healthy is being of sound mind and body because those things are always connected. So being healthy is being aware of your like having emotional awareness and how that may control certain aspects of your life and seeking help when you need it. And then same goes with your physical health and your body is that when your body is needing something or when you're needing care to make sure that you're getting that. Sure. And then let's get specific with it because you have a very niche field. Uh-huh. And that is if someone asks you, how do I make sure that my child's mental health uh, develops appropriately and I don't, I can prevent some uh, mental health issues. What do you tell them then in two minutes? Yeah. Oh, in two minutes. I would first really validate that it must be challenging to be a parent right now in the world and we can only ask that you're doing your best. Um, in terms of kids, I would say really taking time to connect with your child. I know everyone is like really busy nowadays, but taking time to disconnect from electronics, from other distractions and really getting time in the day that you can focus on your child and ask them questions like what's been on your mind lately or, you know, have you been feeling differently lately? Asking questions to kids to help understand where they're at and what they're thinking. And then that creates a sense of trust with your child and a bonding where if something is to rev up inside of them, that they feel like they can come to you as the adult in their life and they can share it with you. And then you can help be the guide. And, you know, parents aren't alone. There's pediatricians, there's other providers, there's like teachers, there's other people in a child's life that are also safeguards that can pick up on these things and they can also inform a parent. And then you seek the appropriate guidance. Um, I will say, I don't know if I'd say this in the two minutes, but there is a, a great online resource. It's uh, Psychology Today, and you can find therapists online and you can filter like with different things like insurance or you know, specifically what your child may need in a therapist. And then you can look at profiles and you can pick a provider. Incredible. Thank you for that. I absolutely loved this episode. I hope I did some sort of justice to it. I'm not very well versed in it. So my questions weren't as good as they could have been. Thank you so much for your time. I can see your passion for this. No, I I love it. I love talking about this stuff. For sure. Um, I hope I did some justice. Thank you for this episode. I hope our listeners back home enjoyed it. And, And Dr. Palopoulos, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.